I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In today's episode of the China Power Podcast, we will examine recent evolutions in China's military doctrine and its implications for Chinese military power. Under Chinese President Xi Jinping, the People's Liberation Army, PLA, has undertaken a series of sweeping reforms, including deep restructuring of military organizations updating training tactics, and doubling down on the modernization of equipment and weapons platforms. A key focus of these reforms has been to reform the PLA into a force capable of conducting integrated joint operations in multiple battle space domains in an era of information-centric warfare. With such major transformations underway, Chinese military leaders were faced with the need to also update their operational guidelines. Toward that end, in November 2020, China's top military body, the Central Military Commission, issued guidelines on joint operations of the Chinese People's Liberation Army trial. These new guidelines mark the first update to the PLA's joint doctrine in 20 years. While the new doctrinal guidelines were not made public, it is still possible to glean important information about China's new joint doctrine by analyzing it in the context of past doctrines, as well as in the context of ongoing PLA reforms. Today, we're joined by Dr. David M. Finkelstein, who has sought to do just that in a new report, the PLA's new joint doctrine, the capstone of the new era operations regulation system. Dr. Finkelstein is a vice president of the Center for Naval Analysis and director of CNA's China and Indo-Pacific Security Affairs Division. He is a longtime student of Chinese military and security issues, serving as a member of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations and the International Institute for Strategic Studies. A retired U.S. Army officer, Dr. Finkelstein has spent his career in several tactical assignments, including in Korea, and in various China and Asia-related positions at the Pentagon. He has also taught Chinese security issues at West Point. Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, great to be here, Bonnie, and congratulations on your new efforts at CSIS. The China Power Project will be well served. Thank you very much, Dave. We wanted to focus today on the paper that you recently published, a monumental paper in terms of understanding where the PLA is going. To start off, I would like to ask you about what motivated your paper on the PLA Joint Doctrine. For example, experts analyzed the PLA from many different angles, such as new PLA hardware, PLA personnel recruitment, PLA training and military exercises, etc. So what is so important about the PLA Joint Doctrine and why should we care? So let me start with a bottom line and then just say a word or two about military doctrine in general. My bottom line is that the new joint guidelines that were promulgated by the PLA in November 2020 is meant to unify and standardize how the PLA will approach operations and warfighting as a joint force. In its essence, the warfighting doctrine that any military develops speaks to how it plans to fight. Doctrine provides guidelines, methods, and agreed-upon concepts for the conduct of operations. It also furnishes a framework for designing operations, and it offers a common conceptual lingua franca among the commanders and the staffs who develop operational plans. And doctrine, of course, once approved, is usually taught in institutions of professional military education, and it drives training in the field. Doctrine can influence organizational structure, command and control relationships, and the development of capabilities. 
And that's exactly what this new joint Gongyao in Chinese, this new joint outline is going to do for the PLA. It's going to speak to the core of what the PLA aspires to achieve as an operational outcome of the military reforms of December 2015, specifically that the PLA should become a force capable of prosecuting joint operations in multiple battle space domains in an information-centric warfare era. So that's why this is a big deal. Can you also talk a little bit about what caused the PLA to develop this new joint doctrine? I know it's a big deal. So when did China start developing this doctrine? What are some of the important factors or threats driving China's need to develop it? The work on this current iteration of joint doctrine, which again was issued in November 2020, a little less than a year ago, probably began in earnest around 2013, after the third plenum of the 18th Central Committee at which it was announced that the PLA would be put into a period of wide-ranging military reform, and doctrine was part of that. So in the near term, you could say they probably began in earnest on this document in 2013. But you could also say that the PLA has been working on joint doctrine since the early 1990s. It published its first joint campaign outline in 1999. And this new iteration, some 20 years later, is just the latest stop on the PLA's continuum of doctrinal development. But as a general proposition, doctrine for a military usually changes when A, strategic assumptions have changed or circumstances have changed, B, when new warfighting technologies demand adjustment to operational behavior, or C, when the nature of warfare itself has undergone a significant paradigm shift. And in the case of the PLA, All three of these factors have been at work, impelling them to seek a more joint force. So, for example, the new battlefield technologies and systems demonstrated by the U.S. during the Gulf War in 1991 and the ensuing revolution in information technologies was weighing on the PLA. And second, the emerging predominance of joint operations as a way to achieve battlefield effects across services and platforms was noticed by the PLA. And finally... The changing nature of the PLA's threat assessment demanded it become a joint force. Specifically, by the early 1990s, the diminution of a survival-level land-based threat with the demise of the Soviet Union and the rise of concerns about possible maritime and aerospace contingencies off the Chinese littoral, all of these strategic circumstances demanded that the PLA rethink its ground force-centric operational concepts and move toward becoming a joint force. So they've been doing this for a long time. So you mentioned, Dave, that the first joint doctrine, at least from what we're tracking, was in the 1990s, and this one began in 2013. So at least from the 1990s, then are you saying there's only been two joint doctrines? So what took so long for this one to emerge from the beginning of 2013 until now, 2021? To the best that I can tell, there has not been an officially promulgated update to the joint doctrine of 1999 until November 20. So that's a long time in between issuing doctrine. We cannot know for sure why it took so long. But there were a lot of problems that we know that they had with their previous doctrine from 1999. So for example, they still had a military organization that was dominated by the ground forces, the PLA Army not conducive to jointness. Second, they had a system of very complicated ad hoc command and control relationships 
they had no standing joint commands. There was also a lot of bureaucratic resistance, we believe, in parochial interests at work within the PLA, which made this difficult. Going from a non-joint force to a joint force, this is institutionally huge. And I like to remind people that it took an act of Congress to make the U.S. joint force the force it is today. Now, left to its own devices, the services probably would have dragged their feet a little bit. In the same token, it literally took an act of, of command by the Central Committee to force the PLA to do what it had long known it needed to do, that is, become a joint force, but which it could not do on its own because of intensely retrenched parochial interests and, we think, bureaucratic resistance. So this is not easy. This is really a paradigm shift for the PLA as an institution, and this is hard. So they had to deal with the operational dimensions of joint operations. How are you actually going to fight, even while technologies are changing faster than they can write this stuff down on paper? But they also had to deal with the institutional, cultural, and bureaucratic problems of turning this organization inside out to become a more purple, as we call jointness, a more purple PLA. And I know this doctrine is not publicly available, so I'm very impressed that you were able to glean so much information about it without necessarily seeing the actual document itself. So based on what you saw from the sources that you've seen, could you describe what you think are likely to be the major new components of this joint doctrine? Yeah. And again, it's good to point out to your audience that this document is not out in the public domain. But when it was published before Thanksgiving last year in 2020, there was a media frenzy in China by the PLA press, the CCP press, and the press on the periphery talking about the fact that the PLA had issued this new Gangyao, these new guidelines for joint operations. So because it's not going to be in the public domain, there's very little about the actual content. However, if you've been following these issues for a long time and you read between the lines and you listen to what or read about what true experts on the PLA in China are saying, and you followed the iteration back in 1999, then you come away with a pretty good feel for what might be in this document. So here's my list of what might be in this document. First, this is a very high-level document. It's not going to tell you about how to move units around. This is about big concepts. So it's going to talk about the roles and authorities for the conduct of joint operations for the newly reorganized PLA organization at the national and theater level. Recall that in 2016, February, to be precise, the general staff departments went away, a joint staff department was created, and the military regions, the seven military regions, which were really administrative entities, transformed into five new joint theater commands with a unified commander. So this document, I like to think of it as a user's manual for how the new organization is going to think about the operational art. Second, I think there will be listed in this document fundamental principles for prosecuting joint operations, very high level precepts and tenets, possibly an updated set of what the PLA refers to as joint campaign basic principles. I mean, very high level issues, sort of like the principles of war in the US, unity of command, uh, the element of surprise, theaters, the services provide the force, the theaters fight the force. So very high level fundamental principles. A third, 
It's going to provide a construct and directives for how the different elements of the force should think about their role in joint operations in the future, meaning the Central Military Commission's role, the role of the theater commands, the role of the services, PLA Army, Navy, Air Force, Rocket Force, and the support forces, the newly created joint enabling support forces, such as the Strategic Support Force and the aptly named Joint Logistics Support Force. So these organizations are probably going to be getting from this document basic fundamental guidance on what their role is in a joint campaign or joint operation. Certainly, the new guidelines will hammer home the linkage between joint operations principles and peacetime trainings. So this guideline is going to have a big effect, I suspect, on how the PLA trains at a certain level, especially at the theater commands, which are responsible for joint training. And of course, the guidelines will also speak to the equipment and weapons development community because they will probably be using these guidelines to think about the types of weapons systems and platforms they need to develop. It will also impact the personnel and professional military education system. And the PLA is very clear about this. The new guidelines actually speak to the role of mobilization, the reserves, the militia, and also how political work, is supposed to support joint operation. So very high level issues. So those are the things that I suspect will probably be discussed. That sounds like a very comprehensive list of almost the most important things when considering how the PLA operates. So your paper had mentioned, and you had mentioned a second ago, some of the joint campaigns. It mentioned a potential joint cyber campaign and the potential that there might be updated guidance on different other campaigns that we already know about, for example, the joint blockade campaign or the joint island landing campaign. Do you have any sense of what some of these updates might be? Or is this a more of a wait and see how everything is integrated together sort of deal? It's certainly wait and see. But if you've twisted my arm and forced me to speculate, the essence of joint operations for any military is command and control arrangements. So I would guess that with cyber outer space and the electromagnetic spectrum now being consolidated into the strategic support force, I would suspect that the new guidelines will provide fundamental principles for how those assets are going to be employed and under whose authority during a joint campaign or joint operation because those are not organic assets to the theaters. They're provided just like the services provide forces and units to the joint theater commander. So it's all about understanding command and control relationships, who has authority, when does that authority kick in, and who is chopping forces, as we say in the military, who is going to be the supported and who is going to be the supporting commander. I suspect these are the issues that are going to be discussed. I would also add, Bonnie, that this document, if it is an actual document as opposed to an electronic file, we just don't know, but that these guidelines are meant to be a capstone set of guidance that all the other services and elements of the PLA will take their cue from to develop their own specific operational guidance. So this one large capstone set of guidance is going to, I suspect, result in a waterfall of other doctrine down at the level of tactics, techniques, and procedures from the other services and the theater commands. Thank you, Dave. In terms of this waterfall of other doctrine, do you think that some of those might be more publicly available that we might be able to see them or at least get a better sense of what their contents are? No. (laughs) 
Unlike the uh, U.S. Joint Force, which puts so many of its joint pubs and service pubs up on the internet, I don't think we can look forward to seeing any of these. Although at some point, as the PLA needs to teach this material in their institutions of professional military education, uh, we might get an indirect glimpse of some of the thinking that's going on about these issues. I also wanted to follow up on a point you made earlier. You mentioned that these new guidelines may also cover the role of mobilization, militia, and political work. As you know, the extent to which the party permeates the military has been quite a bit of interest in D.C. I wanted to ask you, do you see anything, at least in your research, any big shift in sort of the political work aspect of the guidance? No, I don't. Because again, as we've said, we're not seeing the guidelines itself. But as you read all the media surrounding the guidelines, there is a point that is always made that the guidelines also account for political work. And I think we ought to take a digression here for just a moment, because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about what political work in the PLA actually is. So with your permission, Bonnie, can we go down that rabbit hole? Of course, that'd be awesome. Okay, so The PLA considers political work critical to its operation as a force. A lot of people think this is like the Soviets in the 1920s, where a civilian party cadre is given a uniform and inserted into a unit to keep track of everybody. That's not how this works in the PLA. Being a political officer in the PLA is a legitimate professional military occupational specialty, or MOS, as we say. And the role of the political officer is multifaceted. Uh, In many ways, the political officer is responsible for all human capital, promotions, transfers, evaluations. So the political officer has the role of the S1 or the adjutant, the personnel officer in a unit. Political officer also has the role of the equivalence of the morale, welfare, and recreation officer in a unit. And some people might even say the equivalent of the chaplain, for lack of a better analog. But anything that has to do with the human capital or the management of people in the military comes under the purview of the political officer. And of course, we do all that in our military too. We have personnel officers, we have chaplains, we have JAGs, we have inspector generals, and we have morale, welfare, and recreation officers. But the political officer in the PLA has another role that we do not have and would not want to have in the U.S. military. And the political officer is responsible for party organizational activities in units. The political officer is responsible for the management, creation, and membership of party committees that permeate in every unit in the PLA. And the political officer is the equivalent of the second in command of operational units. And so the commander and the political officer jointly command or manage the unit. And of course, political officers are also responsible for psychological warfare, for legal warfare, and the three warfares that so many people have written about. So there's that element there as well. So political work will have a role in the PLA's vision in joint operations. Thank you. I think that's a really, really great clarification. It's much more than just helping the party maintain its control. It has all these other human capital dimensions that I think is often overlooked when folks talk about the role of the political officer in the party and the military. I wanted to go back to talk a little bit more to situate the joint doctrine and what it shows or what it doesn't show with respect to some of the discussions in D.C. about the PLA. So one discussion in D.C. about the PLA has been the focus on PLA planning for either high-end contingencies 
or PLA involvement in gray zone operations. So is there anything in the new joint doctrine that suggests that whether the PLA is going to be focused on one type of operation or one type of planning versus the other? No. The guidelines on the joint operations of the Chinese People's Liberation Army, which is the formal name of this document, is most definitely focused on the high-end operations of the PLA. So if you're thinking about what a campaign in the South China Sea might look like, a Taiwan campaign, or even a campaign on the Indian border, for that matter, these are high-end, mostly conventional warfighting contingencies that I suspect this is speaking to. But you raise a really great point, this idea that there's gray zone operations going on as well. Now, one of the things I, I like to tell people is that Xi Jinping is the first leader of the Chinese Communist Party for which the PLA can offer options across the spectrum of conflict, from low-end gray zone operations through high-end, high-tech conventional operations and campaigns, even to potentially nuclear issues. For the first time, a leader of China has a lot of options that the PLA can, in theory, along the spectrum of conflict. And that, that's pretty interesting, especially for folks like myself who lived through the 95-96 missile crisis, where the most the Chinese could do to show their peak was to lob missiles into the ocean, which of course was a very serious act at the time. But now they've got a lot of flexible deterrent options, as we say in the joint world, a lot of FDOs. So even as China is developing all these flexible deterrent options, as you mentioned, the joint doctrine is focused much more on the high end and making sure that China is able to prosecute the high end kinetic fight when it needs to. In terms of the high end fight and how the PLA thinks about conducting future wars, do you see the guidelines as representing a major doctrinal shift? Or is it more of a logical step in the pattern of PLA modernization that you've seen since the 1990s? It's both. On one hand, we know, and those of us who are students of Chinese military affairs, we've been watching the PLA attempt to become a joint force almost as soon as the Gulf War ended. That's a long time. So the fact that they've been striving for this is something that is not surprising. And it's also natural given how they are redefining their national security interests. I'm not saying that I agree with that, but given how they view their strategic situation, it would be stranger if they weren't trying to develop a high-tech joint force. So on one hand, it's a natural evolution. On the other hand, it seems to me from what little I've been able to glean that this is a tremendous paradigm shift for how the PLA thinks about the operational art and joint operations. And let me just unpack that for a second here, if you will. Previous conceptions of joint operations for the PLA over the last 20 years have more or less been focused on the concept of coordination. The services were still warfighting organizations. They had ad hoc command and control that was thrown together for a joint operation. And they thought about joint operations as the coordination of parallel operations by the various services. That entire concept has been thrown out the window. And now they're talking about not parallel service operations that are coordinated, but completely integrated joint entities. So that unity of command, 
Clearly defined command and control authorities and relationships are in place in permanent theater level organizations, and they're ready to go on a joint operation theoretically without any muss or fuss because they don't have to task organize at the theater level that which they were doing before. Now, the reason this becomes a paradigm shift, not just a one more bright idea, is because if you consider what they did with the reorganization of the PLA, so my hypothesis to be proven or disproven is that the reason that the legacy PLA was dismantled in toto at the national and theater level was because that organization, which was a legacy of the Soviet advisors from the 1950s, could not accommodate the command and control relationships that modern joint warfare demands. And so my hypothesis is that both the joint doctrine and the organizational changes were being developed in parallel and in coordination, and that a new PLA national and theater-level organization was rebuilt in order to accommodate the doctrinal requirements. So that's a paradigm shift, if you buy that argument. Could you describe a little bit more for those listeners who are that steeped in military affairs, what is the actual new command and control relationship within the theater? Could you give an example of what the top tier looks like now? The Chinese PLA, the Central Military Commission, has created five geographically based joint theater commands, a northern, southern, eastern, western, and central theater command. The general or admiral in charge of each of those theater commands has control operationally over all the services that are assigned to him or her. So in other words, if you think about our own combatant commands, you have a single commander who has assigned to him or her component services from the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, etc. And in times of war, that combatant commander will command all of those forces. This is pretty much the model that the PLA seems to have adopted. That's a big change. And they did away with the middle tier of general staff departments that were Soviet-inspired, and they created instead a joint staff department within the Central Military Commission. So they've eliminated various levels of command and control between the national and theater level. They've adhered to the principle of war unity of command at the theater level. And the services, the service headquarters, the PLA Army, Navy, Air Force, Rocket Force, they are no longer war fighting headquarter entities. Their job is to train, equip, and provide to the joint war fighting theater commander the forces that that commander needs to fight the campaign. So these are big shifts, and this shift is also going to entail a cultural mindset shift within the PLA, and we should probably talk about that in a moment also. So these big shifts, including the fact that these service headquarters are now training and equipping the forces instead of commanding them, they seem to be very similar to the U.S. military. Would you say in many ways China's reform has modeled itself off of the U.S. military? PLA is a great student of foreign militaries. My speculation is that their foreign military studies experts spent many years studying the joint systems of what they considered to be the most significant foreign military. So I suspect they looked at the Russians and their new military reforms very carefully. I suspect they looked at the British and they most definitely looked at the U.S., So while the similarities between the U.S. and the new Chinese system are striking, we have to be very careful about mirror imaging. 
The PLA has probably taken the best of all systems, kludged them together, decided what fits within their cultural and institutional milieu, and came up with their own solution. In terms of sort of their solution, I did want to ask another question that relates the joint doctrine to some of the other discussions that we're having in DC in terms of timelines for the PLA modernization. Did you see in the discussion of the guidelines any timeline for which the PLA should be able to fully implement this new doctrine? No, I certainly have not. And again, just to remind the audience, nobody has seen that I know of or has read this actual document, if it is a document, maybe a file, electronic file. I'm gleaning what I can from the chatter around the discussion of the fact that they now have this new doctrine. So if there are any timelines associated with this, I have not seen them. And from your experience, given all the different objectives identified in the guidelines, do you think this is something achievable for the PLA, say, in the next 10 years, 20 years? Or do you think it will take quite a bit of time for the PLA to overcome some of the challenges to implementing the new doctrine? I think we need to give the PLA the benefit of the doubt that if they stick to this and if they adjust it, they also added on the end of the title of this document, the word trial. So I suspect they may be going through some other iterations as things do or do not work out the way they planned. But I think it's going to take them a few years to actually become facile with this. Again, you know, we have new command and control relationships. We have new roles for the services. So I think in the next couple of years, we ought to be looking for how training has been affected by the guidelines to the extent that anybody is capable of following. Of course, that's what you do, right? The China Power Project. Use all that great high tech to follow what the PLA is doing. But we should be paying attention to changes in training, patterns of operations. It's going to take a while. But at the end of the day, though, I mean, they may be able to actually implement this in the next couple of years. Becoming a joint force really is a generational endeavor. And this is going to take time till they have a whole new generation of officers for whom this is not new, but just every day, that's the way it is. I'm old enough to have been in the military, both pre-Goldwater Nichols and post-Goldwater Nichols. Things changed a lot at the joint level. And so what the PLA is going to have to do to make this cultural and institutional transition is to use its officer personnel management system and the NCO system to provide the incentives for people to become more accustomed to and facile with or be assigned to joint billets. Remember, one of the greatest sticks in Goldwater Nichols was that you could not become a general or admiral if you have not had a joint assignment. I mean, prior to Goldwater Nichols, no service member wanted to leave his or her service. If you leave Mother Navy or Mother Army, they may forget you for the next promotion board, right? So now Congress changed the law so that you couldn't be promoted unless you had a joint assignment. And let me tell you, you shouldn't have been standing near the door to join assignments. You would have gotten run over by every colonel in the Army, Navy, and Air Force. So the PLA is going to have to provide incentives for a joint force. And again, the whole force doesn't have to become a joint force. The PLA is a big organization, about 2 million plus people all told, whatever the recent figure is. That whole force doesn't have to become a capable joint force, just enough of it to execute its operations and its plans, whatever they may be. Dave, you already mentioned some of the challenges that the PLA may face, including what you mentioned a second ago about the need for incentives, the need to address some of the cultural issues. Are there any other major hurdles that you see the PLA might face as it tries to implement this doctrine? 
that's a tough one, Bonnie. I mean, certainly they're going to have to train with this. They're going to have to become facile with the command and control relationships. They're going to have to implement a long-term cultural shift. They're also going to have to think about the impact of rapidly changing technologies and weapon systems on the operational concepts that we assume are within the guidelines. Warfare is changing, and it seems to be changing faster and faster as the years go on. That's right. So if it takes 20 so years to write a new doctrine and warfare is changing at a much faster rate, the doctrine might be outdated much quicker than Yelling can put into practice. As I wrote in the paper's conclusion, the promulgation of the guidelines underscores that the PLA continues to be a learning organization. But the question is, are they learning fast enough to keep up with the pace of change in global military events? Those are questions that are unknowable. I certainly can't answer those questions. But the idea that it took them 20 years to come up with a new doctrine does make one raise one's eyebrows. So, Dave, I want to conclude by asking you to speculate a little bit. What do you think PLA planners and strategists worry about now that they have this, I guess, new guidelines for a joint doctrine? They've been developing the weapons, and now they've got this new joint doctrine. And I think that people in the PLA have to be conscious of the fact that they may be called upon to actually employ this doctrine at some point, and they've never done this. The U.S., for all of its faults and all of the pot shots that people take at the U.S. military, we've been doing joint operations for breakfast for many, many years. We know how to do this. The PLA has never fought a real joint campaign in the modern period. Of course, they had their island campaigns with Yi Jiangshan back in 49 and 50. But even when they went into Vietnam, it was a ground force operation. When they went into India in 62, it was a ground force operation. Usuri River, Junbao Dao, 69, ground force operation. Korea, 1950, ground force dominant operation. They have never fought a joint campaign in the maritime aerospace domain. And this, I think, has to be a daunting thought in the back of the minds of PLA planners and commanders. Thank you, Dave. I think it's good that PLA commanders and leaders are worried about some of their capabilities because hopefully that will give them pause before China uses its capabilities. I want to thank you very much for joining us today. A really, really great, fantastic discussion on all aspects of the PLA. And we could not have asked for a more distinguished as well as a better student of the PLA than you. Thank you again, Dave, for joining us. 